congregation, the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters and visitors. We are looking at one of the seven churches that are listed in this uh, opening several chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, we looked at the city of Ephesus um, previously, and I've skipped a few of them because uh, I want to make sure that I have uh, some time to get through the book. Uh, almost entirely, but uh, I, I, I'm not sure that I will be able to do it totally. But I've just selected this one, and I don't know, uh, at the time when I chose this one over another one, I don't know if I was particularly thinking about us here, because, you know, it seems to like sort of dovetail with, you know, smallness and so forth, and the lack of power and everything. Um, but we can certainly identify with uh, the description that is given of the church in Philadelphia, can't we? Um, you know, it says there in uh, verse 7 and 8 in particular um, that I know your works. Uh, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one can, sh uh, uh, which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power and you have kept my word and have not denied my name and so forth. Um, what we learn very basically from this letter to this particular church. So we're talking about Philadelphia, we're talking about uh, the western portion of Turkey today. So Ephesus is the city that was on the coastal line, but now due to the silting process over the centuries, is now several miles away from the coastline. Uh, but you have Ephesus, you have Smyrna, Pergamum, Sardis, Laodicea, and then also um, Philadelphia. Uh, it mentioned in the text that I will give you a new name and so forth. Um, historically speaking, uh, this is now the third name that is given to this establishment, this city. Evidently, there have been two other names given to it. Um, I don't know if the people couldn't make up their minds about uh, you know their identity as Philadelphians, but um, uh, that's what it ended up being. Uh, uh, city of brotherly love is what that means from the Greek language into our language. City of brotherly love. Um, it was probably the most recent of the seven cities. It was established about 140 BC, before Christ. Um, and um, it was uh, a fairly sizable city. Um, it had a temple that was, there were more than one temple, but the main temple was devoted to the god of Dionysus. Um, and, uh, and so it was uh, established... Uh, not only to just uh, do commerce and trade and so forth, but also as a place that would sort of put on display uh, the way to live life according to the, the Greeks and the Romans. And so that would be, of course, uh, very pagan, very uh, ungodly, unholy. Uh, the abuse of alcohol, uh, sexuality, um, uh, think of yourself before others and so forth. Um, it was in God's providence that by his wisdom and purpose, there would be this tiny little church that would be located at the crossroads of places, of, of, of avenues, of roads coming in and going out. It has been referred to as the gateway to the east. So Philadelphia was an important place. It was uh, a crucial place for many reasons, and it was good for commerce, it was good for their religion as they saw it, 
but in God's wisdom, it would be the place where he would establish his church. And yes, it was not a megachurch, was it? I don't know that they had megachurches in those days anyway. I think most Christians met in people's homes in those days. And it's only afterwards, with under, under Constant, the Emperor Constantine, that the Christian religion became a legal religion. And then, of course, like the Jewish people could, they could then build houses of worship. Um, but at this time, at this very early time in the Christian church, people mostly met at home. Uh, but the fact remains that in Philadelphia, there is then also that church. And uh, when you compare all the seven letters, you notice one thing with this church. With the other churches, there is one thing usually of criticism as well. There is no criticism mentioned in this particular church. Remember the church in Ephesus? All kinds of good things were said of it, but you lost your first love. And if you don't fix that, I'll take my lampstand away from you, Jesus said. Pretty serious talk. Such a great church. Everything was great outwardly. Everything was in place. They did it correctly and so forth. But if you don't have love, it doesn't mean very much from God's perspective. So Philadelphia does really well, comparatively speaking. Uh, the Lord Jesus has many good things to say. And that is also my first point. What are the things that he commends them for? Um, well, verse 7 is kind of the introduction to the commendation, uh, where it is made plain that uh, the one who speaks to this particular church, Philadelphia, is no one other than God himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. The words of the Holy One, the True One, and I think that is a reference, by the way, to what is mentioned in verse 9 about those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews but are not. Jesus is introducing himself right away as, I am the true one. I'm not duplicitous. I'm not uh, speaking with double forked tongue. Uh, I am the true one, the holy one. I am the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. The Philadelphians are there by God's will by God's purpose, and that is, as I understand it, the sense of the open door here. Um, you can go farther into that, what that might mean, but you can also easily then begin to speculate, and you can't be very dogmatic about that. Um, that would be a safe principle for interpretation to, to hold on to. But it is definitely the one who has the key huh, of David. He controls that house of his. He controls who comes in and who go out. He controls the, the time and place for this church. Uh, churches do come and go. Many of these seven churches are no longer there, right? They have faded away in history. But when God places his people in a certain place, in a certain location, they are there by his will, and nobody, no government, no other person, whoever, uh, can um, shut that opening because Jesus is the one who controls the time when his church has its place in history and time for his purposes. And so then there are those wonderful things that are said. He says, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Verse 8. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word. 
and you have not denied my name. Those are very important things to be commended for, aren't they? Uh, it is acknowledged that this little tiny group um, is not very impressive from the world's perspective. Um, they are few in number, it sounds like. There is, uh, as we say, um, uh, probably a, a limited uh, amount of human resources, material resources, um, but that doesn't seem to keep them from being successful in God's eyes. Very important for us to remember that we don't think like the world does. Okay, if you have a Starbucks coffee shop, you know, uh, I don't know how that all works, but the, <laughs> or McDonald's or, um, you know, or um, J.C. Penney's, you know, and at the end of the year up there in New York City at the uh, 97th floor, uh, the, the board or somebody looks at the figures of that 2020 year and says, well, uh, that location in Colorado Springs, they didn't make enough money. We're closing them. Okay, and that's how they operate. That's how Wall Street operates. Economies operate, probably. Um, that's not how God's economy works, per se. Uh, in God's economy, what matters is faithfulness. And it looks to me like this little tiny church in Philadelphia is a faithful church of Jesus Christ. And they are fruitful within the means that God has allotted to them. And they are to be commended for that, and Jesus does. He commends them for having little, but nevertheless having kept his word and having not denied his name. There are some extra-biblical uh, sources, ancient scriptures, manuscripts, and so forth. Uh, one who refers to the um, martyrdom of Justinius, uh, of Justin, excuse me, and it just mentions that he is from that area, from Philadelphia area, and that there were people of the faith, Christian people, who were martyred for their faith. So there was persecution during that time period also in Philadelphia. The Roman emperors persecuted the Christian church, um, and so uh, it would be very difficult, in other words, for a Christian to survive in that kind of um, hostile environment. And uh, it would be easy for them to say, okay, I'm going to go to the temple and I worship to this God uh, and I will uh, make my, keep my boss happy and I will go to his party where you know, all this stuff goes on uh, because I want to keep my job. It would be very understandable, wouldn't it, to, uh, to think that way. Um, it would be a challenge for a Christian not to compromise their faith. And somehow, Jesus commends these Christians for not doing that. They have not denied his name. I know when there was communism in the Eastern uh, European portion of, of, of Europe, uh, under communism, uh, Christians uh, who were arrested, who were found out. Um, I, I've read this um, many times, uh, the accounts. Uh, people would gather in the woods, in forests, Baptistic people particularly, uh, and if they were found out, then um, the, the, the people would be, uh, they would place a Bible on the, on the floor of the forest, and Christians were called to step on that Bible. And by that, to, to deny the faith, to deny Jesus, deny God. 
Um, and then the idea would be that they would be saved. They wouldn't be executed. Um, you know, I don't know what it was like, of course, uh, exactly um, in any detail. But the suggestion here is that they had a difficult time living as Christians in that particular place. And um, they did not deny the name. Then on the heels of verse 8, we have this sort of a little cryptic uh, message about the synagogue of Satan. It says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say, this is what they are about, I think, who say that they are Jews, but are not. But they lie, says Jesus about them. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before you, and they will learn that I loved you. So from a Jewish perspective, from a Jewish perspective, they would claim that God loves them alone, right? From the Old Testament perspective, they are God's chosen people. They are the beloved people of God. They are the covenant people of God. Um, uh, and no one can make that claim and, as it were, sort of uh, compete with that or take it even away from them. What Jesus is saying, that uh, has, in fact, happened. Um, you can say that you are the chosen, you can say that you are the true Jew, but if we read John here in the book of Revelation, or the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, a true Jew is a person, whether you are a Jew according to the physical lineage or not, or a Gentile like us, a true Jew is a follower of Christ, is a born-again believer in Christ. And so that is a status that has nothing to do with nationality, ethnicity anymore. Whether you're, when you're a human being, no matter who we are, where you live in this world, when you come to grips with the fact that you have to bow down to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, ex receive his love and forgiveness, then you are, quote-unquote, the true Jew. Because the true Jew has to do with identity, right? A Jewish person saw him or herself as one of God's chosen people, and that, of course, was something very significant. Uh, the Jews were chosen to be a means of blessing to all the people. And when they refused that mission, when they rejected their Messiah, it didn't matter anymore if you were a physical offspring of Abram or not and call yourself a Jew. A Jew, as it were, defined as a person who belongs to God and is part of his family, is one of his sons and daughters, is one who is that by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ, whom God sent as the one who would make propitiation or uh, atonement for our sins. And so the commendation is, is just uh, uh, very uh, wonderful, um, but there's also um, the second point uh, to be uh, dealt with, and that is that it, Jesus is ever the faithful one. Uh, he, keeps, he keeps his church. So he is the one who holds the key of David. Um, he is the one who opens the door and no one can shut. Um, and he says that uh, someday those who are then denying the faith, who deny the Lord Jesus Christ, they will come before you. They are persecuting you now. But there comes a day 
that all will bow down. And he says, before you. Usually when I, as a, as a Bible reading person, think about bowing down, I only think about bowing down to God. Because he alone is worthy of being bowed down to. But in this letter, the Lord Jesus is suggesting that the enemies of his, enemies of God, they will bow down before those whom they persecute as well. And they will recognize that you are the beloved. We, by God's grace, are no better than anybody else. But we are the beloved of God. We are the beloved, chosen, privileged sons and daughters of the living God. And what a blessing that is. He says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Jesus endured trial. Jesus was faithful in his trial. And he didn't once compromise his commitment to the Heavenly Father to do his will. As Jesus was patiently enduring the commission that was given him, which was a unique one. None of us could do what he did. But we have our task, and we, our task is to be faithful in this world where we're not particularly liked, um, where Christians from all the centuries have endured persecution, and that type of persecution will always be there. It's, it's just part of life uh, for the Christian, and maybe it comes to America uh, someday as well. But there are other parts of the world where God's people have, all, have, have suffered and are currently suffering for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Um, so he says that uh, the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. So there's a, there's a sense in which the future, he speaks about the future, I don't know, to, to, to um, you know, I can't pinpoint that on the calendar, right? Uh, but there is a, there's, a, there's a statement here that someday the whole world will be enveloped in a, in a testing, in a trial. And I see that not as judgment, first of all, but I see it as discipline that God graciously uses for the nations to, to repent. Um, to repent and to still turn to salvation, to still turn to Jesus Christ as our, as our Savior and as our Redeemer. Um, uh, because otherwise, Jesus is coming, he says. Several times in this passage as well, he says, I'm coming soon. And when Jesus comes soon, he doesn't come as the baby that Mary held. He comes as the Lord. He comes as a king, as a judge of all the nations. And who will stand when he comes in all his glory? When the heavens break up and open up and the new Jerusalem comes down? Who of us will stand and say, oh, that's interesting. Oh, you, that's, that's good for you. I don't care. <laughs> all people everywhere will bow down because he's holy. He is so holy we can't see him. If we were to stand in his presence apart from his saving, covering, shielding, protective grace, we would be, I don't know, annihilated by the sheer presence of him. 
But that is the beauty of the gospel message. The good news is that we don't destroy in his presence. But he is the father who places his hands on us. Because he called you in his heart. Through his son Jesus Christ, he loves us through the cross. And so he keeps us. And that is reflected in the church, in Christian people. If there are followers of Jesus Christ, you should, anyway. It doesn't always happen, because we are not perfect at all. But a Christian should be a person in whom you see Christ reflected. Perseverance, endurance, courage, love, patience, and all these other attributes that so glorify the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The hour of trial is coming. He's coming soon. And he says at the end, now be careful. Be careful that you hold fast what you have, that no one may seize your crown. It's <clears throat> a statement that I theologically put my signature under, and that is, once saved, always saved. If Jesus saves me, he doesn't do it half-heartedly, he doesn't do it halfway, he doesn't say, I did my part and now you do your part, through holiness and so forth. He saves us. I'm saved. I know where I'm going. Should this be my last day? But, it says that he is um, um, he, he's holding us responsible. So here's the human responsibility that comes in. God is sovereign in all parts, but in his economy, in spiritual terms, he is calling us to be faithful, <coughs> to not let the crown be taken from us. When I s reflected on this passage, um, an Old Testament passage came to mind where we have the situation between uh, Jacob and Esau. Remember in the Old Testament, that's, uh, you have to go all the way to the time of Abraham and, and you know, very long ago. But there were two brothers then, Jacob and Esau. Um, and uh, Esau came home from his work and he was tired and he wanted food. And uh, Jacob had it there and he said, give me some of that. And J Jacob said, you have to sell your first birthright to me first. Then I'll give it to you. The Bible looks very critically, very negatively upon that act of unbelief on the part of Esau. Um, I don't know that God was particularly glorified in how Jacob accomplished this part. But Esau was stepping on his identity outwardly at least, as one who was favored by God also. But he didn't care. He was presumptuous. He took it for granted that God already loved him. And so when he did this act of unbelief, it is, as it were, losing his crown. God only knows who are his and who are not. But outwardly, the call to perseverance and faithfulness comes to all indiscriminately who claim to be followers. 
and will we hold on to that crown? The only way I understand that can be done is to remain faithful to the Word of God, faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, faithful to our calling in this world to suffer, to suffer for Him, and in the process of suffering, reflect who we are, because in our suffering we do not lose hope, we do not lose joy, we do not lose uh, the, the purpose for living, we do not just become depressed. In our times of depression, we remember who we are, we are the Lord's, we belong to Him. And so this is then spoken of us by promise, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar, it says. A pillar in the temple of my God. Now you have to remember, Philadelphia was located in a portion of Turkey that is earthquake prone. Um, like some places in California uh, and others uh, around the world, Indonesia. Um, uh, uh, Philadelphia had experienced it in 1780 or BC, I forget now, I think it was 80. Uh, there was a major earthquake, um, and uh, the federal government of the day uh, stepped in uh, to, uh, to help repair that whole uh, city and its economy. Um, sounds like uh, the, the Marshall Plan, you know, after the Second World War. Um, but uh, that is the fact of life. Uh, things uh, didn't last necessarily uh, very long. Uh, buildings crumbled under the powerful effect of an earthquake. Uh, Jesus is saying to you, to who follow him, that uh, you are one of those pillars of my temple that cannot be removed. Nothing can break you. Nothing can upset you so that you fall and you are forever lost. Um, you are a temple, a pillar in my temple. Um, and, uh, and it says, never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. So he is permanently part of God's people, God's temple, God's house. Nobody can evict us from the fellowship of God. Um, but uh, those who are his, it says at the end of this passage, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. So names are very important. I don't know your backgrounds, of course, uh, all of you. Um, in some parts of the world, a name is more important than maybe in other parts. Um, but especially in biblical times, uh, ancient times, names were very important because you associated that with a tribe, let's say, with blessings that would come through the patriarchal lines to you as an offspring. Um, but uh, uh, God says of us uh, that he will write on us the name of himself. So if God writes his name, which is holy, and he writes it on you, it means that he claims you. You are his. In the olden days, not in the olden days, uh, we have a farmer in our midst, um, you know, in Texas and other places, uh, cattle uh, couldn't just be roaming around um, because uh, the neighbor uh, next door might not be so scrupulous, and uh, if it didn't have a identification sign on it, he would probably take it and add it to his herd. <laughs> so we have branding, right? How, what is the name for that? Branding? Yes. Branding. So you take maybe, like in my case, Fritz Harms, F-H, or uh, you know, initials, and you, and you burn that into the, the hide of this poor animal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
and uh, it is then identifiable. It belongs to farmer so-and-so. Uh, it is, uh, and, and the same is here in a different sense, that we belong. We belong to Jesus. We belong to God. Nobody can take us away from that relationship. Nobody. We have a name and we have a place. That's why it mentions the New Jerusalem. There's a lot of fighting about Jerusalem, isn't there, in the world? Different people, different groups claim things for themselves. Um, that will go on till Jesus comes again. Jerusalem on earth will never be a peaceful city completely and forever. That's also where we should not put our hope. Our hope is about the new Jerusalem that will come down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name is associated with that. So nothing in this world gives me ultimate peace, ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction. What I need to know is I belong to God, to His Son Jesus Christ. And I have a life that begins now and that will go on forever and ever. When that comes, when Jesus comes again, and it will be soon, he said. We don't know when, but it will be soon. You should expect his coming any moment, is what that means. And when you're prepared and when you're ready, you will see this on display for you to see and enjoy the heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven that bears the name of the Lord. So he who has an ear. I don't see anybody here who has, don't has, doesn't have two ears. In the back there and here, we all have two ears. Okay? He who has even one ear. Let him hear, or her hear, what the Spirit says to the churches. Because your life yes. Your eternal <coughs> depends on it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this letter. Ancient letter indeed. It's 2,000 years old by now. And yet it is a letter that needs to be read to the church today. Any church. Whether it be big or small. We thank you for our church. And for the time that you've given us. We don't know how long. But we do know that the door is open, um, and you are in charge of your church, whether it be here or in other parts of the state and country, whether it's in other parts of the world where your people live. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters everywhere, that they would all have the strength and the courage of faith to rem remember that they are loved and that they are embraced by you. And that they're kept by you. And that nothing, not even martyrdom, not even the sufferings that we experience uh, in this world, nothing at all can keep us from entering into that new city that we expect where we'll live forever as your people. Heavenly Father, thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.